We are in Acts chapter 9, so as you're opening your Bibles, go all the way there to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, kind of a big, important text in front of us this morning, the conversion of Saul, who of course becomes the Apostle Paul. We'll be covering the first 20 verses of Acts 9. The title of the sermon is The Goad of God's Grace. What is a goad, you say? You will know within moments what a goad is. The Goad of God's Grace in Acts chapter 9. I'll be working from the NIV this morning. We will read all 20 verses, pray, and then get into it. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, surely your love is great and it knows no bounds. And some would even say that at times it seems reckless that you would choose a man like Saul a murderer, and make him your chosen instrument. What a crazy love. Thank you that this same love is directed at us from you, God. And it's just as crazy that you would love us and save us and use us for your glory. Thank you, God. May we today be in awe of the way that you work. May we be thrilled by the mystery of your purposes. May we become more aware of your work in our lives 
And may you give us today a strong resolve to serve you and obey you. And we ask now, please, God, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I could teach and preach in a way that's humble and faithful and helpful. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a wonderful text in front of us, as you can see, somewhat self-explanatory. So we'll just talk about some things concerning it. As I was thinking about the sermon this morning, I was reminded of this fact that other preachers that I hang out with often make fun of me because I almost never have an intro to my sermons and never have a good intro whatsoever. Travis makes fun of me. Bo makes fun of me. The church planners make fun of me. Other pastors, I, it's, like, it's like a running joke. Like, Britt never has an intro to his sermons. And I'm somewhat aware of this. I think maybe because God has been dealing with my ego lately. So I'm aware of those things. So this morning, I was trying to think of an intro to the sermon. And as I was thinking about an intro, I was reflecting on the last few weeks and what we've been learning, how we've been talking a little bit about who in our community might be the least likely to be saved, right? And so then let's be praying for that person. Who's that person in your world around you that you could be praying for? And I was like, yeah, maybe that's a good intro. I'll ex- exhort the people to be praying. That'll, that'll get them feeling guilty. And then I realized, because is that what an intro does, Trav? I don't know. And then I realized that I had not been praying for the guy that I had nominated least likely to be saved. So then I felt guilty and I began then to pray this morning for that person. Maybe that's why I don't do intros. Maybe it's too much to think about. And then I realized as I was thinking about this sermon or this text that all the big themes that we've been talking about the last few weeks coalesce in this story that we have in front of us of the conversion of Saul, right? We've been talking a lot about the fact that God is always present and active in our lives. He's always with us and he's always working. We saw that in the martyrdom of Stephen and the way Stephen explained the history of Israel and God's present active work with Israel. We've also been learning that God often works in unexpected ways, Right, So much so that we should almost come to expect it, we said a few weeks ago, but then it wouldn't be unexpected. And we saw how God works in unexpected ways with the salvation of the sorcerer in the last chapter. And then we've also been talking about the fact that we have a role to play in God's saving work in the world. We have a specific role to play. God intends to use us and our witness for the furtherance of his kingdom purposes of salvation. And we saw that in the story of Philip witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch last week. And all of these themes coalesce in the conversion of Saul. God was at work in this story. He was at work in Saul. Saul would have been for sure by the church in Jerusalem voted least likely to be saved. Like 100%, he nailed that. He had that page in the yearbook. That was his title. And we also see that the faithful witness of the church plays a real role in the conversion of Saul. Now, we know, of course, that this guy Saul, who we've been introduced to in the last two chapters, becomes the Apostle Paul. His name will be changed in a couple chapters from now. But we cannot miss the profundity of this guy being saved, the least likely to be saved. We cannot miss the importance of his salvation. 
We've been introduced to him with just a few sentences. We'll look back at the end of chapter 7 and see the first introduction to him. If you turn back to Acts chapter 7, you'll remember that Stephen is before the Sanhedrin. They're just about to kill him as he's testifying. And it says in Acts 7 verse 57, At this day the Sanhedrin covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, Stephen, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. There's our first introduction to the guy that we're talking about today. And then we get a little more about him in the first few verses of Acts chapter 8. We'll read that. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, And Saul approved of their killing Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And then the next thing we hear about him is Acts chapter 9, our text today, the first verse. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and asked for letters of the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, an interesting name given to Christians at this point, the way, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So, Without question, this guy Saul was a Christian killer. That's what he was doing. That's what he intended to do. And he was going to great lengths to doing it. To do it, excuse me. The question is, why was he doing it? We, we have to understand that without a question, Saul thought he was doing the absolute right thing according to his Judaism. According to his religion and his understanding of it and that time, that context and that culture, he thought he was doing the right thing. To him, there was this new way that was clearly from his perception a false way. And so it had to be done away with. The exact opposite of what Stephen's defense was before the Sanhedrin. Stephen said, there is a new way. And it is incompatible with the old way. So you got to do away with the old way. This is the way. Paul says, no way. (laughs) This new way is a threat to the old established true way. It's got to be dealt with. And here he departed from his mentor, uh, Gamaliel, who we met in Acts chapter 5, who had said about the threat of the church, listen, guys, don't do too much to these disciples. Right, Because if this is just a human thing, it'll just fade away like every other uprising of a so-called Messiah. But if this is a God thing, there's nothing you could do. So just leave it alone, let it play out. That was Saul's mentor in Judaism, a noted teacher in Israel. And Saul said, I don't care what my mentor says, I'm departing from it. We're not going to let this play out. We need to deal with this. And he's dealing with it. But there's something else at play here. We know that the Christian killer, Saul, will become the Christian missionary, the Apostle Paul. And that he will be primarily responsible, the work God in him, for the gospel going to the Gentiles, which was always the plan. Right? In Genesis chapter 12, it started with Abraham when God called Abraham and he gave him the Abrahamic covenant. And he said, through your seed, Abraham, speaking of Jesus, all the nations will be blessed. 
It was never meant to be just about Israel. They were a vehicle for God to bless all the nations. It's always meant to be that way. And now we truly see it unfold through this guy, Saul. He will be the main way in which the gospel goes to the Gentiles or the non-Jews, the surrounding nations. And Paul would take multiple missionary journeys. We'll get to them in the book of Acts. And he would plant churches all over the then known world. And he would have, we'll see in the book of Acts, crazy adventures with Jesus. He would have crazy adventures with Jesus. And he becomes the focus of the book of Acts now. It's kind of been about Peter and the other apostles in Jerusalem. We had a little vignette about Philip. He was killing it. He was doing a good job. Now, Luke, the author, is going to follow primarily Paul through the rest of the book and his adventures with Jesus. And what we'll see here and what we also learn in the rest of the New Testament is that Paul experienced tremendous hardship in serving the Lord. Remember, Jesus said in the text that we just read, I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. That's kind of scary. And indeed, Paul did suffer. Let me just read to you. I'll just read it to you from uh, 2 Corinthians 11. Paul recounting some of his hardships in ministry. He's talking here about other people that serve Christ and his qualifications compared to them. And he says, and um, this is 2 Corinthians 11, starting the second part of verse 23. I've worked much harder than them. Paul was given to boasting on occasion. <laughs> he honestly was. He says, I've worked much harder than them. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely and, again, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. Who shipwrecked? Three times. <laughs> I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Scary. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, dangers from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Welcome to the ministry. (laughs) Paul would have great and fruitful adventures with Jesus, but he would experience a lot of suffering on the road. In the midst of all of that, Paul would manage to write about half of the New Testament. Of course, the Holy Spirit, the ultimate author, through him. About half of the New Testament, this Christian killer. Think how reckless the love of God is. He takes a Christian killer and says, I'm going to make this kind of my main dude for writing the New Testament. (laughs) 27 books in the New Testament. Think of all the ones that Paul wrote. We can just walk through them, start with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he didn't write any of those. But after that comes Romans, he wrote Romans. And then 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he wrote 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, he wrote all of those. And then 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he wrote all of those. And then 1st and 2nd Timothy, both of those. And then Titus, he wrote that. And then Philemon, he wrote that. 
And then Hebrews, we're not sure. It's argued, did Paul write Hebrews or not? I think when I studied the book, I think he did, but it's disputed. Travis disagrees, but what does he know? And then after the book of Hebrews comes what? James, first and second Peter. He didn't write any of those. Those were James and Peter. And then first, second, third John, that was John. And then this little book, Jude, and then the book of Revelation. He didn't write any of those. So he wrote either 13 or 14 of the 27 books in the New Testament. God is crazy. God works in unexpected ways. He took the least likely to be saved and made him the greatest Christian worker the world has ever known. I love that. That's beautiful. What also is beautiful, more than the way that God used Paul, is the way that Paul treasured Jesus. Through all of that labor, through all of that suffering, Paul came to treasure Jesus. Recall his words in the third chapter of Philippians, where Paul says about his credentials, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. And I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul said, everything that came before everything that could come after, everything else that is present in my life is second to Jesus. He treasured Jesus above everything else. And it's funny because he met Jesus in a weird way, right? We just read about it. He's on the road going to Damascus to kill Jesus' people. Jesus appears. There's this flash of lightning. There's this sound of Jesus calling his name. He's knocked to the ground. And Jesus says, why are you messing with me? I love that Jesus is why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting Jesus' church and Jesus took it personally. We are, after all, the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. You mess with someone's bride? Jesus says, Saul, why, why are you messing with me? They met in an interesting way. And it says that suddenly this light appeared. And though the light came suddenly, their meeting was not at all sudden. And here's what I want us to get. Christ had been working in and on Saul for some time. Remember what we've been saying. God is always present and working in our lives. And we've also been saying, as we think about evangelism and doing ministry with Christ and sharing the gospel, that we believe that God is always present and active in the lives of those around us who do not yet know him. God is working in their lives. And that is true too here. Here's the evidence. On one occasion later on in the book of Acts, this story of Saul's conversion will be told a couple more times in the book of Acts. That's how important it is. On one occasion, Paul is recounting his conversion. He's given his testimony in front of King Agrippa, right? Kind of a big deal. And he reports that Jesus said to him on that day, some words that aren't included here, but Jesus clearly said them. He includes them later. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard to kick against the goads. I want you to hear that. Saul, Saul, why are you messing with me? It is hard to kick against the goads. So Saul was doing something to Jesus, persecuting his people. But Jesus was also doing something to Saul. 
I like that. Saul was doing something to Jesus, and Jesus was doing something to Saul. Jesus was goading him. Why do you kick against the goads? Now, a goad is a spiked stick that in this time, in this culture, you would use to move cattle. We would call it a cattle prod. And generally, they're electrified now, so bzz, right? Prod along, like, you, you understand, you with me? Let me know you're with me. So a goad, if we're going to use a noun form, was a stick with spikes on it. You'd poke in the back of cows or other animals where you, to get them going where you wanted them to go. And you can imagine it's hard to kick against that. Right, if a cow's kicking against that, he's kicking his or her feet right into the spikes on the stick, or in modern times, the buzzy part. So a goad is a thing that stimulates someone into certain desired action. A goad is something that gets a creature in the place that they ought to be. And if you want to use it as a verb, to goad someone is to provoke or annoy them so as to stimulate some action or reaction. To goad somebody is to provoke or annoy them so as to stimulate the desired reaction. Have you ever been goaded by somebody? Have you ever goaded somebody? Certainly you have. Saul hated Jesus at this point. That's why he's persecuting his people. But Jesus loved Saul his whole life. And that's why he had been goading him. Jesus was engaged, unbeknownst to Paul, Saul, in this loving pursuit of him. And Saul had been fighting. He'd been kicking against the goats. And Jesus says to him on the road as he's on his back, it's hard to do that, isn't it, buddy? It's hard to kick against the goats. Now, what might have that pursuit in Saul's life, even recently here in the, in, in the New Testament context, what might it have looked like? We're not told explicitly, here's how Jesus was goading Saul. But we can imagine it. It's not hard to think of. It's actually pretty obvious. Paul would have, in his life, heard about the ministry, the message, and the miracles of Jesus. Right? This is only several months after those took place. And they were contemporaries. Saul would have been about the same age as Jesus, living in the same country, going to the same city often to celebrate the feast. He would have heard all about this supposed Messiah. He might have even seen him face to face. And of course, from his perspective, as he heard about the message and the miracles and the ministry of Jesus, he would say, none of that could be true. But what if it is? That can't be true. But what if it is? Then he would have heard about the supposed resurrection. Everybody heard about the resurrection. And Saul's perspective would have been, no way, not possible, couldn't have happened. But what if it did? Then he would have seen the explosion of believers in Jerusalem in response to the preaching of the crucified, resurrected Jesus. And he would have witnessed there in Jerusalem the way that the church lived under the rulership of Jesus. They lived differently than everybody else in Jerusalem. That they were sharing with one another, caring for one another, incredibly loving toward one another. You'll remember they were selling all their stuff and bringing the money to anybody who was in need. Saul would have seen the way that they lived and thought, that's not real. 
But what if it is? And then he was there holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen, and he agreed that it was the right thing to do. But he was also there during Stephen's defense, and he heard how Stephen talked about Jesus being the fulfillment of all the Old Testament portrayal, and how they, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, were missing it. And of course, Saul, in his religious training, would have said, I'm not missing anything. It couldn't possibly be. But what if I am? And he saw, he witnessed Stephen's calm courage and heard his indisputable wisdom, it says in Acts. He would have thought, this doesn't make sense. But what if it does? And Saul was a witness to the fact that Stephen, with the biggest authorities in his religious land about to kill him, was calm and confident, and that his face shone like an angel. And Saul, looking at that, would have said, what is that? And then Saul would have heard when Stephen said, I see heaven opened. I see the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Saul would have said, that is blasphemy. But what if it isn't? And then as he stood there and held the coats, as they stoned Stephen to death. And the last thing that Stephen says is, Lord, forgive them for doing this. He would have said, that's not real. But what if it is? What if a person had been so touched by grace and transformed by Jesus and so in awe of his own salvation that he held no malice toward those who meant him great harm. What if there was something inexplicable from Saul's perspective about these Christians, something supernatural, something which spoke of the divine power of Jesus, and I am sure It troubled Saul. And I think that the growing pile of what ifs, this burgeoning doubt about his own position, were like goads prodding him. I believe that those were some of the ways that Jesus, in his love for Saul, was prodding him or goading him. What if Saul's persecution of the church was driven by the goading what-ifs. The psychologists of ages past said, fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating secret doubt. What if Paul was so afraid of the what-ifs about Jesus that he had to try to wipe out that fear? All these questions, all these what-ifs would arise in the conscience of Saul as he witnessed the present work of Jesus. And I think that those became the goads and God's present work in him. So that when Saul was suddenly knocked to the ground and learned that it was Jesus speaking to him, it wasn't actually sudden at all. It was the conclusion of a long, drawn-out process. Hear that. 
It was a conclusion of a long, drawn-out process. We've just surmised about a few months of it. But you know what Paul realized in reflection later on? That that process had been from his mother's womb. He wrote to the church in Galatia and said this, Even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. And then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. Paul knew that this was a long process of God's crazy, reckless grace pursuing him. And at this point, we pause and I ask the question, what about you? What about God's long, gracious pursuit of you? Perhaps for salvation, maybe you've come here today and you realize that you need to be forgiven of your sins. Jesus is the only unique son of God who died on the cross to pay the price for your sins and you need to repent of your sins and put your faith in him and be forgiven and receive new life and eternal life. Maybe you're realizing today God's been goading you. There's all these instances in your life that have been hard to kick against and hard to deny that that's God's loving work and pursuit of you. Today's your day. Maybe you're already a Christian. You're here today. And there is some way in which God has graciously been pursuing you. Maybe it's about an issue in your life or a relationship or a course direction or an area of sin or an area of service. What process does God have you in? It's good to stop and pause and think about those things. I also want us as a church, as witnesses of Jesus, to realize this. That the present powerful work of God in his church that we see in the book of Acts was actually also the present powerful work of God in its detractor, Saul. Get that. They never could have known that. We never know when this is happening. But God's present active work in and through his people was actually also at the same time God's present active work in Saul, the Christian killer. They wouldn't have guessed it. There's no way they knew it. They weren't having prayer meetings saying, well, let's pray for Saul. Right? They were trying to get away from the guy. You never know what God is doing. He works so unexpectedly, we ought to come to expect it. And our faithful living, faithful living, unbeknownst to us, is the process of God in those around us. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Our call to be Christian witnesses, to live this thing out, our faithful living and witness, is the process and work of God in those around us. And in his great love for Saul, voted least likely to get saved in Jerusalem, God had graciously goaded him to the point of surrender. And that's what we see here. We see Saul surrendering on the road to Damascus. He addresses Jesus as Lord, which in that language at that time could have meant sir, or it could have meant Lord. He obviously meant Lord. And he does exactly what Jesus tells him to do, go in the city and wait. This is the point of Saul's surrender. It's important to point out at this juncture that Saul had not been seeking Jesus. He was persecuting Jesus. Jesus had been seeking Saul. That's what's going on here. 
Important to realize. Saul had not been seeking Jesus. Jesus was seeking Saul. Saul had been fighting Jesus. But Jesus was fighting for him. Now what about you? Are there any ways in your life in which you are fighting Jesus, kicking against the goats? That hurts. Today, realize all the while that Jesus is fighting for you. Saul did not choose Jesus. We often talk about making a decision for Jesus. It's not what Saul did. Jesus chose him. Think about the words that he would write later on to the church of Ephesus in the first chapter. Paul writing here says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So, we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us. That's Paul again testifying, telling the church in Ephesus, listen, this is what it is. Man, I was running hard in the other direction and God in his grace was pursuing me. And he had chosen me from before the foundations of the world. I was chosen by God. And so he knows that this thing that happens here in his life was God's doing. It was the sovereign grace of God and not his own. He would speak of it in the terms of creation. Creation did not create itself. Hello? God created it. And so it is with the gospel being revealed to us. Again, Saul testified in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, and he says, For God said, let, let light shine out of darkness, creation, Genesis language, and made his light shine in our hearts also to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. In the same way that creation was a sovereign act of God in his power, so was our salvation. Paul would later on talk about it and say, I didn't take hold of Jesus. Jesus took hold of me. Philippians chapter three again. Not that I've already obtained it or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Jesus took hold of him. This wasn't Paul's plan. This was God's plan. And though it's astounding because it's Saul, the Christian killer, it should in no way be surprising Because Jesus already said a long time ago in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And if anybody was lost, did not see, did not understand, did not get it, needed to be saved, it was Saul. And that's what Jesus is in the business of doing. So I ask you again, who in your world would you vote least likely to get saved? Come on. Jesus is present and active and working in her or his life. That's what he does. And it was a work of God in Saul's life. John Stott, who's one of, he's deceased now, but he's one of my all-time favorite pastors. I love reading everything that John Stott wrote. And he wrote this about this text and about this idea that we're talking about. To sum up, 
the cause of Saul's conversion was grace, the sovereign grace of God. But sovereign grace is gradual grace. Gradually and without violence, Jesus pricked Saul's mind and conscience with his goads. Then he revealed himself to him by the light and the voice, not in order to overwhelm him, but in such a way as to enable him to make a free response. Divine grace does not trample on human personality, he continues, rather the reverse, for it enables human beings to be truly human. It is sin which imprisons. It is grace which liberates. The grace of God so frees us from the bondage of our pride, prejudice, and self-centeredness as to enable us to repent and believe. One can but magnify the grace of God that he should have had mercy on such a rabid bigot as Saul of Tarsus, and indeed on such proud, rebellious, and wayward creatures as ourselves. Well, I think what this idea is meant to do is to cause to well up in us a deep sense of gratitude for the grace of God brought to us in Jesus. Because from God's perspective, we were no better than Saul. We're absolutely surprised that he would take Saul, the Christian killer, and make him Paul, the apostle, a missionary, because we have sort of like, we grade on a curve about badness. That's what we do, we grade on a curve. And so it's easy for us to do what we always want to do, look at someone like Saul and say, I am better than him. Right? We love doing that. Our entire culture is based on betting that you will think you're better than so-and-so, and and if not, they will make you know it so that you buy what they're selling. Our entire culture is a comparison culture. And our religiosity, so to speak, and even our spirituality is deeply and grotesquely infected with it. So that when we think about grace, we think that we are the recipients of less grace because we were better than so-and-so. But God says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none good, no, not one, Romans chapter 3. So the grace that is amazing for Saul is just as amazing for me, just as amazing for you. And what this is meant to do is to thrill us once again that God would save sinners like us. It is to the glory of God that he saves people like us. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it. We are the recipients of overwhelming grace and kindness from God. And it is also meant to encourage us then to live faithful lives. Saul, Saul, his, Saul, 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 Saul viewed his testimony as a source for encouragement for us. Look what he would write later on to Timothy. Again, Paul testifying. I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Look at that. Paul says, dude, I was the worst of all. I mean, Paul boasts about anything. He'll even boast about being the worst. <laughs> I was the absolute worst. No, nah, dude, I'm pretty bad. I'm way worse than you. Other days he would say he was the most awesome, but that's a different sermon. 
I'm the absolute worst. God showed me mercy. He was aware. This is late in his life, not long before his death. He never lost a sense of awe about the mercy he had been shown. He writes to young Timothy and says, man, I was shown mercy. At the end of his life, he doesn't start to think, well, I've become a good Christian, so now I deserve something. So I was shown mercy. And God chose me the worst of all to do this as an example for others. Because you know what? Sometimes we also think that we're the very worst. We're such weird creatures. Sometimes we think we're the very best. And then other times we feel like, gosh, I'm the absolute worst. Is anybody else like this? Yeah, we're all like that. God loves the worst people. He's nothing like us. We love the best people. God loves the worst people. Our whole culture is based on a bet that we'll love the best people. So they'll find the best people, they'll prop them up, make a big deal out of them, put them on all the platforms, and sell you everything that goes along with it. God doesn't love the best people. God loves the worst people. There is no best people from God's perspective. We're all the worst people. God alone is good, and his mercy is beyond compare. And so, in closing, which maybe is, maybe not, (laughs) I want us to ask the question, what are the goads of God's grace currently at work in my life? Not you thinking about me. me. What are the goads of God's grace in your life? In what ways has God been in a long pursuit of you? And can you identify any way that he's been goading you, lovingly prodding you along? Can you identify any places where you've been kicking against the goats? And Jesus said, that's hard, man. That hurts. I want us to think about it. I want us to reflect this week. Journal through it. Write about it. Pray about it. What are the goads of God's grace currently working, working in your life? Because for sure, without doubt, without doubt, we are proud, rebellious, and wayward creatures. And God is always present and at work in our lives. And in his love, there's always some goading going on. And then perhaps an auxiliary question is, where have you been seeing God moving or pulling or speaking and saying, nah, that couldn't be? But what if? Don't ignore the what-ifs. No, God wouldn't have me do that. But what if? God wouldn't call me to surrender that. But what if? God would never send me. But what if? It's hard to kick against the goats. And you know, our experience with Jesus doesn't have to look like Saul's. They're doesn't have to be a flash of lightning, a fall to the ground, this voice that comes from heaven. But there will come into our lives an enlightening, enlightenment from God. There must come into our lives a humbling of oneself on the ground saying, Lord. In every instance, not just for salvation, in every instance. And we have to hear his voice speak our names personally. 
It's not just Saul, Saul, it's you, you. You've got to hear the personal call of Christ upon you. It's there. He loves you. He knows you by name. He formed you in your mother's womb when he called you. He's been working sovereignly in your life. And we also, brothers and sisters, we have to hear the personal summons. Jesus said about Saul, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. We have to hear the summons to service. My goodness. There are not meant to be active Christians and non-active Christians. Christians that serve the Lord and Christians that don't. Christians that are on mission and Christians that are just sitting in the pews. That is not a thing. That is not meant to be a real dichotomy. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, that every single Christian is called to serve Jesus, that Jesus has a plan for every one of our lives, that all of us count in the kingdom purposes of God. And our story won't look like Saul's story, thank you God, but you do have a story that is an adventure with Jesus. And you've got to hear the call. And I want us to be mindful this week as we scatter now as the church after another set of worship, communion and prayer, as we scatter as God's people. I want us to think about how God is present and active and working in our lives, maybe in unexpected ways, and how that might be God's process in others. We don't often think about that. We're very self-centered. We think a lot about God's processes in us, his present and active work. But just consider this week and maybe pray into how might God's current work in you actually be the work in someone else around you that God is doing? Because Jesus loves you as much as he loves Saul. Jesus cares as much about the people around us as he did the people in Jerusalem and Damascus. And then finally, a single passage. I want us to, as we enter into worship, just be thrilled once again with our salvation. Paul's testimony, one more time, different words than we've seen before. I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. God have mercy on me, because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I'm the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for these glorious truths and your glorious grace. We just ask now that as we respond to the preaching of your word and to your presence in our midst, through taking communion, celebrating the cross and our salvation, by praying, recognizing that you're present and you listen, by humbling ourselves and even getting on the floor before you, a declaration that you are Lord. We ask in all of that, 
you be wonderfully present, working in our lives, leading us in paths of righteousness for your namesake. For truly, Lord, our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We belong to you. We've been shown immeasurable mercy and grace. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In Jesus' name.